You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. speaker is Michelle O'Brien. She is a PhD candidate from the sociology department here at UW and she's also a fellow at the Center for uh, mm -hmm. Studies. Studies of Demogra Demography and Ecology, CSD. Perfect. Uh, and she will talk about Russia. So take it away, Michelle. Okay, thanks so much for having me. I hope that you've had a really fun and exciting day so far. Um, I will go through and talk a little bit about the rise of neo-nationalists in Russia. I've prepared a quite short presentation because I learned my lesson last year um, that you guys really love questions and I really love answering them. <laughs> so I will leave you plenty of time to, to ask your questions and for me to sort of pontificate on them. Uh, so I'm talking today about the rise of neo-nationalists in Russia and I want to give you sort of a backdrop. I'm going to describe some of the different manifestations of neo-nationalism in Russia and what that means. And then we'll talk a little bit about the implications, both the sort of implications on the ground with physical security as well as some geopolitical implications of the kind of neo-nationalism that is popular and widespread in Russia today. So let's take a look at the setting. This big orange thing here is Russia. To the west, Moscow here with the star, that's the capital uh, city. And then you've got Eastern Europe, North Caucasus, and Central Asia. And I won't be talking about these countries today, but I will be talking about migrants to Russia from those countries. When we think about Russia today, we think about the sort of grandiose, um, you know, the, the architecture in Russia, the culture in Russia, sort of strong leader in Putin, um, and the Soviet legacy. But there's also a different kind of legacy in Russia, and that's this tension between East and West. And so this picture I took in Moscow in a park called Friendship Park. And in Friendship Park, there are, uh, a, there's a building for each ethni like ethnicity represented by the Soviet Socialist Republics. So there's um, a Ukrainian building, and a Russian building, and a Belarusian building, and a Kazakh building. And this is the Russian building. This is Dom Narodorasi. And this is, so it's this sort of grand building. In the middle ground here is Lenin, who's sort of looking out benevolently. And then in the foreground here are Western cartoon characters uh, that you can pay someone to take your picture with. Mm -hmm. And so you have like Minnie and Mickey Mouse, the Ninja Turtles, and Shrek. And there's this picture I loved because you have this really, really clear visual symbol of the sort of tension between East and West, this tension between the legacy of the Russian Empire and of the Soviet Union, and then the sort of new consumerism of the West and Western culture. So let's rewind to 1991. Um, the Soviet Union collapses, and there's a big shift in population in Russia. This map shows the concentration of ethnic Russian people in the newly independent states um, just a couple of years after the Soviet Union collapses. The red are the concentration of ethnic Russians. Of note here, Crimea. This island here is Crimea. Um, up to the north here are the Baltics, those three countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. There's some red concentration in there. 
This is Eastern Ukraine with a little bit of red. And then Kazakhstan and Northern Kazakhstan. I won't talk about that today in my presentation, but I'm happy to talk about what uh, Kazakhstan and the government of Kazakhstan did to sort of alleviate some of the pressure that they had from ethnic Russians up there. So the first migration movement to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union were these ethnic Russians repatriating. But then after ethnic Russians sort of moved back to Russia, as it were, then another, a second very big wave of uh, migrants came from Central Asia, the North Caucasus, and Eastern Europe. And by 2012, Russia had become the second largest migrant destination in the world, behind us only, behind the United States. Um, the estimates of the number of migrants in Russia at any given time are really politicized and they vary widely. It's very difficult to count all the migrants in Russia because as you saw from that vast expanse of territory, it's got essentially an unenforceable border. Um, it's super huge. And um, it's also politicized by the different sort of sides of the migration policy debate. And so on one side, you have neo-nationalists who want you to be afraid of immigrants, right? Who sort of rest on this anti-immigrant sentiment and this anti-immigrant, this sort of fear of immigrants in the population. And so um, we'll talk a little bit about how that manifests, but there are political parties that claim that there are 15 million undocumented immigrants in Russia at any given time, which is a pretty huge number. But the Federal Migration Service, whose job it is to sort of secure borders and you know, keep undocumented migration at a minimum, their estimate is maybe 4 million. Okay, so that's the range. Uh, that's sort of what we know about how many migrants are probably in Russia at any given time. Somewhere between 4 and 15 million. Probably right in the middle. So neo-nationalists, as I said, rest on this sort of anti-immigrant platform. And you heard today about some European neo-nationalists and, and what they look like today from Steve Pfaff. And I want to go over some of those typical characteristics that these Russian neo-nationalists share, but I'll also expand on it, because Russian neo-nationalists care about a lot more than sort of this anti-immigrant nativist sentiment. So yes, they are welfare chauvinists. They want a welfare state or something similar to that that um, benefits the ethnic Russian. They are anti-immigrant, for sure. Um, and they're pro sort of ethnic majority, the rights of the ethnic majority, and, and also the sort of glory of the ethnic majority, right? The sort of symbolic strength of the ethnic majority is very important. But in Russia, there's some new elements that might not be seen in a lot of European parties, and that's this sort of anti-Semitic, anti-Westerner, anti-foreigner in general. There's a lot of talk about sort of keeping foreign agents out of Russia, keeping foreign influence out of Russia. Um, Anti-LGBT very anti-LGBT, um, anti-gay rights, and in, in fact, um, you may have heard about the uh, Kremlin's passing of the legislation that uh, sort of being gay or claiming that you're gay is propaganda, it's harmful to children, you can be prosecuted. Um, they're also pro-empire, and I'll show you a couple of photos with some symbolism of the Russian empire that are interesting. So they're sort of pro this like Russian hegemonic power that can conquer everything around it. That is an important sort of geopolitical power as an empire, as sort of like a conquering force. And we saw a lot of this in Ukraine. And also pro-strong leader. So neo-nationalists in Russia have um, often praised Putin or other strong leaders who they think can lead this sort of strong Russia back to greatness. Um, so here's a photo from a Victory Day parade. Victory Day is the day that World War II ended. Um, the Soviets won that war. 
So they have a Victory Day parade. Um, they lost about 20 million people, and they have a very big parade sort of honoring that every year. Um, at the end, tail end of every parade, it's sort of hit or miss whether or not you get neo-nationalists taking over. And you sometimes do. Um, sometimes they're carrying photos of Stalin, red roses for Stalin, um, because Stalin was a very strong leader who got them through World War II, right? Um, you also see a lot of other symbolism here in this photo. You see the sort of neo-Nazi like hail salutes. Um, you see the black and yellow colors, which are the Russian imper uh, imperial colors, the Russian imperial flag. Um, and you see uh, the banner here, which I'm not sure what the rest of the banner says, but Ruski is a really important term that I'll go back to a couple of times in this talk um, that means ethnic Russian. So there are two words in Russian that refer to Russians and is sort of loosely translated to Russians. Ruski is one, and that means a sort of ethnic Russian. And Rasiski is the other, and that means a sort of citizen of Russia. So if I moved to Russia and I sort of you know, burned my passport and be declared myself a citizen of Russia, I could be Rasiskaya, but I can never be Ruskaya. Right? So there's a difference between the sort of ethnic and citizenship thing in the language. And that'll be important when we talk a little bit about rhetoric and the sort of symbolic violence of nationalism. So let's get to the purges. If you talk to any Russianist and you mention the word purges, you will automatically think of what? Anyone think of a purge? Stalin's, Stalin's purges. purges yeah. Right. So in the 1940s, Stalin purges like half of the Communist Party, right? This huge, devastating. Um, purge of lots of intelligentsia, lots of academics, lots of communist leadership, upper leadership, um, as he started to get extremely paranoid. Um, and it was really, really devastating. It's a huge deal, right? Huge piece of Russian history. Um, and today, there are attempts by neo-nationalists who say that's actually a, a kind of a blemish on our historical record. Never happened, right? So there's, uh, ironically, an attempt to sort of purge the purges from history, and um, it, it goes alongside with this distrust of foreign elements. So when there are purges of the textbooks in Russian schools, there are often um, claims that you know, these schools are funded by Westerners, or these schools are funded by some sort of political unsavory that's foreign to us, right? These are not Russians who are teaching this, these are foreigners. And so it's, it's really paired with this idea of foreign agents and ousting the foreign agents from uh, Russia. And unfortunately, it also pairs with another element that is common to neo-nationalists, which is violence, street violence. And so there have been some attacks on schools and unfortunately on children. And ironically, they use language like, we are purging the children of this foreign evil. Right? So um, I, I put an article, a news article, in your materials and your supplemental materials that outlines that, but all of my materials should come with a caveat that nationalism is really violent and sort of graphic in Russia, and so that one comes with that caveat. But um, the language that they use, I think, is really um, important to sort of think about the anti-foreigner sentiment, and not just anti-foreigner in the way that we often think of it in Western countries, where it's this sort of anti-migrant or anti-other um, sentiment against you know, migrants coming in and taking our jobs. This is, for neo-nationalists, really a battle for who gets to control culture in Russia. So speaking of culture, uh, let's talk about the Spiker Gang. This is the Night Wolves leader. His name is the Surgeon. Um, he is a pretty 
uh, cozy fellow with Putin. He's been photographed a lot with Vladimir Putin. He um, is the leader of a biker gang that has a mission to restore greatness to Russia. And he has praised Putin for his strong leadership in this aim to restore greatness to Russia. And he has been um, awarded with medals from the Kremlin um, about teaching patriotism to Russia's youth. Um, the surgeon is heavily implicated in uh, militia activity in eastern Ukraine. Um, he's been photographed there. His biker gang has been photographed there in Luhansk, in Crimea. Um, and he was quoted in a speech from Ukraine in March 2015. He's quoted as saying this. For the first time, we showed resistance to the global Satanism, the growing savagery of Western Europe, the rush to consumerism that denies all spirituality, the destruction of traditional values, all this homosexual talk, this American democracy. So really summed up his platform here. Um, <laughs> not fun. Uh, and, and very sort of anti-US, anti-Western Europe, and anti-liberal democracy. I mean, this is a very sort of advanced political stance to be taking for what we usually consider as sort of like hooligans, right, and rioters um, who carry the sort of nationalist banner. So speaking of hooligans, right, um, hooliganism, you'll hear a lot when we're talking about Russian nationalists. So we're sort of moving from thugs to hooligans, right? And so what's the difference? The difference is all in the pr uh, prosecution of them. So this hooliganism is an all-encompassing term that the Russian media uses, that the Russian uh, law legal system uses, and it's used in two ways. One way is to trump up charges against political unsavories, as it, as it were. So it's used in the Pussy Riot case. Um, but it can also be used to sort of dampen a sentence. So if you assault someone in the street, um, but they don't really want to prosecute you for assault because you were probably talking about Putin or sort of hailing the greatness of Russia, then maybe you'll get charged with hooliganism. right? So um, Russian football fans, are, or soccer fans, are very notorious for hooliganism, which is essentially inciting violence and starting in on street violence. This is a um, Russian man in a Russia t-shirt kicking an English soccer fan. Uh, and there are lots of pictures of him, but this is really clearly shows his Russia t-shirt. It's not a very good kick. Um, but I wanted you to see that he was clearly identifying as a Russian. Um, and so, this sort of dichotomy, right? You can have hooliganism be a strategic legal term that allows you to sort of give a sentence or not give a sentence to um, people who engage in violence or engage in political protests however you want to, right? This is a very strategic term that can, it's very vague and can be sort of used however um, they want to. Okay, so um, getting even closer to the Kremlin, we'll talk about Nashi. So Nashi in Russian means ours. Ours, as in our Russia. Um, this is a Kremlin-sanctioned party. Uh, it's a youth group, so it's all young people. And this young lady here is holding a sign. It's a heart, but it's got kind of cropped out. Um, it's a heart, and it says, Putin loves us all. And this is the Russian, these are the Russian colors on ribbons, and they're very passionate. And I've recommended a documentary to you called Putin's Kiss. Um, if you've ever seen it, I saw some nods. 
uh, you can see the sort of fanaticism, the sort of celebrity status that Putin has for Nashi, um, for members of Nashi. And Nashi has been implicated in the attacks on uh, journalists who have written anything sort of inflammatory against Putin, anything that can be considered sort of political dissent. Um, there have been a lot of attacks on journalists, including murders that Nashi has been implicated in. And of course, not much has come of that, right? But there's a lot of evidence that Nashi, or at least members of Nashi, were involved. Okay, so when we talk about nationalism, we often talk about sort of state-sanctioned nationalism and then where your protest vote goes, right? So this is a smaller mainstream political party called the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia. It um, stands for nothing that I just said, none of those words, except for maybe Russia, right? So um, this billboard features Vladimir Zhirinovsky. He's the leader of LDPR. And this billboard says, LDPR for ethnic Russians, Zaruski. So he's using this term for ethnic Russians. This is the party for ethnic Russians. And this party has been remarkably consistent since the collapse of the Soviet Union. In 91, Zhirinovsky came in third in the presidential race that saw Yeltsin elected. Um, so he's been around for a very long time. And in 93, they were the majority party elected to parliament. They're no longer the majority party because we have a huge, behemoth, monstrous Putin party, right? United Russia, that now takes up tons and tons of the vote. But regardless, they get into the Duma over the threshold every single election. Um, and they're well established in many of the different regions. They have regional offices. Their platform has remained remarkably consistent and essentially defines how we know neo-nationalism in Russia today. So they're uh, anti-immigrant, they're anti-EU, they're anti-Westerners, and importantly, they want to defend ethnic Russians abroad. So this becomes really important when we're talking about Putin co-opting this language when we are talking about Putin co-opting Zhirinovsky's language specifically, um, Putin is co-opting not just the use of sort of ethnic Russians here and sort of you know bringing glory back to Russia, but he's co-opting this idea, this policy idea of defending ethnic Russians abroad, and this has huge implications, right, for Ukraine and possibly for sort of the fear in the Baltics. Ah, so uh, LDPR is sort of. Um, widely supported. There are different areas where you can tell, you can see um, if you overlaid a map of sort of ethnic composition in Russia, you can see that where there are concentrations of ethnic Russians, um, LDPR does really well. And where there are influxes of migrants, LDPR does really well, right? Because you've got this sort of population change and some uncertainty around that. Um, where, they're, where it's dark brown, that's where LDPR is doing really well. And where it's yellow, that's where they're not doing very well. And so down here, this is the border with the North Caucasus, right? Lots and lots of persecution of minorities here. Um, this right here is sort of bordering Central Asia, getting away from Moscow. Um, here's where Tatarstan is. It's a lot of ethnic minorities who have for a long time had their own autonomous region. Not very much support for LDPR there. Right. So we can see the sort of mirroring of ethnic composition and uh, the support for LDPR. So I've talked a lot about the Kremlin and Putin and sort of implications and evidence. And the reason that I've used this sort of couched language around this is that we don't actually know what the real role of the Kremlin is. Um, it, this is a sort of shadowy area of study, right? We have lots and lots of evidence 
We have super strong evidence that there's involvement in eastern Ukraine. Um, we have, you know, Russian tanks being there is one of the pieces of evidence, although Ray Putin <laughs> continued to deny that they were there. Um, there's very strong evidence tying Putin and the Kremlin to Night Wolves, um, to not only sort of them as people, but also like the directives, right, and why they went to eastern Ukraine, why they went to Crimea. Um, and then, of course, the Kremlin doesn't really have any plausible deniability when it comes to legislation. Um, when they legislate against gays, against street activism, when they legislate to um, restrict protests and opposition, this is very clear, sends very clear messages and can empower this sort of vigilante street justice that we see um, in lots and lots of incidents of hate crimes in Russia. Um, and this is where I, sort of my research falls in is that, so I talk a lot in my research about that, yes, hate crimes are pretty universally bad. Um, they send signals to ethnic minorities that they're not welcome, that maybe this is a dangerous place for them. But it's actually in the legislation and the sort of formal manifestations of this neo-nationalism that you see the most danger for ethnic minorities. Because then it's not about sort of street violence or physical security. It's about worsening prospects and, and your sort of diminishing ability to make a livelihood where you live, right? Or to keep your family safe where you live. And these sort of ideas of fears of um, your, sort of wor your life conditions getting worse um, and this has really happened in Russia, where legislation has really led to the empowerment of sort of violent actors. Um, and we especially saw this in LGBT. If you look at sort of um, a time map of hate crimes, there are almost no attacks against LGBT before legislation is en enacted, and there's a huge spike after. Right? So you have a sort of baseline, right, like icky violence. But there's a big spike after when, essentially, they pass legislation that says, yeah, you're right, it's not OK to be gay. OK, so this has evolved into Putin's administration since 2000. Putin's been essentially leading this country for 16 years. Yeah? What was the name of that legislation? You know, I don't know it in Russian um, off the top of my head, but it's the anti-gay propaganda law. So the legislation is, um, it essentially makes talking about gayness, talking about homosexuality, uh, propaganda. So it's like turning the youth, right? And so um, you can be uh, prosecuted for just talking about homosexuality in general, right? Which is why like Madonna's no longer welcome in Russia, Lady Gaga got in trouble and under this law. Okay, so Putin's essentially over the last 16 years co-opted a lot of this language and a lot of this rationale into uh, his speeches. There was a big shift that we saw around 2013, 2014, where um, he started using the ethnic terms instead of the citizenship terms. He started using Ruski instead of Rasiski. Um, and this is important, right? This is an important sig signal about the future of Russia. It's an important signal to uh, sort of the people who are voting for him and the people who are um, conducting their business every day in Russia about what their future life will be in Russia. And the implications are twofold in sort of what I've read and my opinion. Um, there are two really big implications of this kind of neo-nationalism. The first is physical security. So the sort of immediacy of street violence, the immediacy of hate crimes, um, 
threatens the physical security of ethnic minorities, of Westerners, of women, of LGBT people, of um, Jewish people, of Muslims, of anyone in a headscarf, right? Um, in the streets in Russia is not safe, right? So there's a sort of urgency of this. There's an immediacy of this. And in especially, like I said, Russian soccer games are sort of notoriously bad places for dark-skinned people. They just are. Um, and the second part of this, then, is a sort of longer-lasting, long-term implication of geopolitical security. So my research has shown that ethnic minorities tend to migrate out of the regions where there's all of this nastiness, right? Where there's uh, a lot of support for the LDPR, out of there. Where there's a lot of hate crime, yeah, out of there. Um, so there's population consequences to this, where you have population shifts. There are also geopolitical sort of um, fears, perhaps rightfully so, in the Baltics about this rationale of the concentration of ethnic Russians being used to annex Crimea, right? Um, so that's really salient because of the map that I showed you before with all these little red dots and the fact that the Baltic states have all this pretty enormous Russian minority um, is not really, uh, is not a secure future if you have a Russia that can annex without consequences, really, um, a sovereign state. So um, I'll wrap up the sort of formal part of the presentation now. And I'll give you some idea of what the further reading is about that I've given you. And of course, like I said, warning, 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 graphic violence and language, right? Um, these are nationalists. If you look at, if you watch that video of Trump supporters, you'll have the same warning, right? Sort of graphic language and a little bit of violence. So uh, there's a really good documentary about night wolves in Ukraine and their involvement as a sort of militia on the ground and their sort of plausible deniability with the Kremlin that I would highly recommend. There's also Hunted in Russia, a very disturbing documentary about being gay in Russia today. Um, Putin's Kiss is the Nashi documentary that some of you have seen um, that shows sort of connection between Nashi and some of these journalist attacks, attacks on journalists. And if you have not read some of Masha Gessen's work, she's a journalist from Russia who's done a lot of reporting about Putin the kleptocracy, the sort of corruption around the Kremlin, and um, is, finds herself to be in danger in Russia most of the time. And she is a contributor now regularly at The New Yorker. I would highly recommend that you delve into this if that's of interest to you. Um, you can also reach out to me. I'm highly contactable on the internet. Uh, I'm happy to talk with you more about this, and I'll take any of your questions. So I guess there's been a lot in the news uh, over the last few years about uh, Russia, especially under Putin, how the you know, annexation of Crimea, uh, possibly Russia uh, trying to annex like further locations throughout Europe. Uh, do you think there is any kind of validity to uh, to the kind of fear of, of Putin going beyond just Crimea, or do you think Crimea is just kind of a one-off anti-NATO type type response, more structural than anything else? Yeah, so let's talk about Crimea. How did I know that this was going to be a question? Um, so Crimea is a special place for Russia, right? So Russia, the Soviet Union gave Crimea to Ukraine in 1953. That's extremely recent when in, in terms of sort of like border changing um, in the global context. Um, and if you take a look at this map, look at Ukraine's divide. So 
Look at Russia, Russian as a native language, the, this is the proportion, so the darker the yellow in eastern Ukraine there is the higher percentage of the population that speaks Russian as its native language, as the first language. And then look at the um, election results. So um, in the red, this is the sort of pro-EU um, presidential candidate, and Yanukovych is the sort of pro-Russian, sort of what they feared was the like Russian puppet candidate, right? So. So there are a lot of things that happened. It wasn't just ethnic, the large Russian ethnic minority in Ukraine or Crimea that um, sort of provoked this annexation. Right? And it can never really be that. right? So we see lots and lots of places around the world, and conflict researchers talk about this all the time. It's not just about ethnic fragmentation or having a majority or minority. There has to be sort of repression of something, a political event that happens right? that sort of triggers a conflict. So in this case, right, you have Euromaidan after um, you have this sort of conflict between the two fundamentally opposed candidates. And the idea that Putin sort of put forward was, OK, these people aren't really getting their say in elections. Euromaidan is a disaster. There are all these protests in Kiev, right? And um, we have to go and protect these ethnic Russians from having their culture stamped out. So the fear in the Baltics then was, well, if you're Latvian and you have, if you're part of the sort of Latvian government and you have this large ethnic minority, do you allow the ethnic Russians who are there to have like their own schools? Do you allow them to have like their own sort of cultural autonomy? And do you do that because you're really interested in sort of multiculturalism or do you do that because you're afraid that Putin will come in, right? And so I think that the sort of ethnic mi minority being there on its own, not enough reason for Putin to go in. And I don't think he's that like brutish, right? I, I mean, something that's very dangerous about Putin is he's very strategic, right? Very, very intelligent. He played these cards right, right? Um, so I don't think that, you, that the Baltics are actually in danger unless there's some sort of like triggering event, right? But even then, I would say the probability is lower because the Baltics are, the Baltics were never, so Crimea was always considered for Russians, like in their like vision of the na Russian nation, Crimea is part of that. It's a very popular like vacation destination for Russians, right? And so this idea of Crimea was important in a way that I don't think it's important for the Baltic states. I guess that was basically my, my point because yeah. it seemed like my whole thought is that it's really a, this uh, ethnic suppression is really just a cover, just like uh, uh, the Nazis with the Sudetenland. Uh, you know, it was ethnic German, but still. Uh, oh yeah. And that's the main argument I guess people tend to make about uh, Russia annexing Crimea is just like Russia going in, into Georgia was just uh, expansion of NATO and a fear of NATO continuing to expand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit more complicated than just a fear of NATO. Uh, but I, I get your point. And absolutely, the like the ethnic repression line is like nine-tenths of the way a falsehood, right? So it's absolutely a rationale to do what Putin wanted to do. Um, I, I definitely believe that. Yeah. Yeah, so it gets the the relationship between Ukraine and Russia is extremely complicated and long-standing, right? So Kiev is the was the capital of Old Rus in like literally year like 50, 
right? So, so this relationship goes back a long, long time. I think the Crimea, like the actual Crimea memory, because it's, you know, a generation old for most people, is more salient than the sort of like broader historical thing. But I, I definitely think you're right. Like, if if this had happened in like. I, you can't really say, tell the similar like historical continuity story with Estonia, right? You can't really tell that same story of like we're one, we're brethren, and you're a tra and you're a traitor. And actually, okay, my next supplemental slide is um, from the Night Wolves, and it's uh, this call right from the surgeon that basically says um, there are these twelve hero cities, the same numbers of the apostles of Christ, mm -hmm. and one is a traitor. It's Judas, and that's Kiev. Right? So like we are all sort of united in this like Slavic greatness empire, except Kiev, the traitor, so we have to do something about it. Right? Yeah. So does the church, uh, does the Russian Orthodox Church factor into this at all? Because it was when they were in Kiev that they first became Christianized. I'm wondering if the church is mm. influencing the drive in so so I don't know if that's connected. So obviously, like religious symbolism is huge, and the church and the Kremlin are like essentially in cahoots, right? Um, they're extremely closely tied in contemporary Russia. In terms of whether or not that like dates, like whether or not that's tied to the Christ like Christianization in Kiev, I can't really speak to that. That's I kind of studied contemporary stuff, so like yes, there is a historical precedent for that, and I I wouldn't be surprised if that's used as like rationale and rhetoric, yeah. totally. Yeah. I, I just had a just a, a quick quick thought about Crimea. So since yeah. the, the the original population of Crimea had been was sent someplace else, right? Uh, and uh, <laughs> but it, but if you think about it uh, about the, the the narrative about you know Russification, but continuing this that you know if you see that area as a as a place of that's right now you know the wrong people the right people. Uh, 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 Need to be in control there, you know. The the others, um, you know, are uh, you know. We need to since they have the right to return. We don't want to make sure that their numbers, uh, uh, you know, that, that they uh, are able to to remove the rightful people, the the Russian people from the area. So in in essence, it does make make sense within that narrative. To take yeah, I think the narrative is really smart, right? I mean, it's it's a narrative that is rooted in like this idea that in order to make Crimea ours, there are two different ways that we could do this sort of like demographic engineering. One they already did, which was to kick out all the Tatars and then move in all the ethnic Russians, right? And they did that like overnight. It was extremely horrific. If you ever read about the Crimean uh, Tatars and how they were uh, evacuated, right, to Central Asia, um, they had like two hours notice and they had to get all their things and they thought that they were going to death camps. So a lot of them didn't bring things and then they died on the trains and stuff. It's very horrific. So there's this sort of like bloody history of Crimea to begin with. And the reason that all those ethnic Russians are there is because because they were sent there as part of this sort of demographic engineering that you could do when you were part of the Soviet Union, right? When you were all sort of Soviet socialist republics. And then you become different sovereign states. And the other way to uh, do demographic engineering is to move borders around, which is a lot harder to do than to move people around, but you can find a way if you really want to. So I, yeah, definitely. I was yeah, thinking if, whether you have a comment. I was thinking about the, the language of Russian discourse and rhetoric, and what I noticed when I started paying, really teaching Russian 
is how intense and often brutal the whole language is, even in the literature, like the life. And it just seems there's a sort of uniqueness to that that's a continuity. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how that contributes to the actu activation of violence, like the, violent, the connection of the violence of language, brutal language, and the violence that's then carried out. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that there's, I think that we can tread on dangerous ground if we talk about like cultural uniqueness and like allow cultural symbols to like in to be a cause of violence rather than a sort of shield to like uh, a sort of symbolic shield to say that like well we kind of don't don't have any choice um, so I think like there are certainly uh, language symbols and um, linguistic rhetoric that are used to incite violence, just like there are in many languages, including ours. Um, but yeah, I think sort of a connection between like literature and cultural and linguistic symbolism and nationalism would be a really interesting study to see sort of how nationalists like use different components of language to incite violence. Yeah, good idea. Um, my picture of populism, for for rightly or wrongly, has sort of a male image and no more so than in Russia and I just wonder is that your sense of it yeah it is my sense of it um, it is yeah I, I think that the sort of when you think about like fragile masculinity and its connection to um, radical politics it's it provides us with a lot of answers about who is protesting and why right um, I think that that sort of attacks on masculinity and Putin's like very machismo appeal uh, are connected, right? And I think that this is also connected to violence against LGBT people, right? Mm -hmm. um, definitely, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of strong gender component, yes. Um, Sorry, I'm pointing. I can't see your name yet. Um, I believe last year you said something about migrants to the big cities like Moscow coming from Central Asia. It was one of the tea stands, I can't remember, uh -huh. Tajikistan, yeah, Tajikistan. And that their main source of income is remittances. Mm -hmm. Is this rise in street violence and thuggery pushing them back home? Is, that, is there any way to track whether that's happening? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question, one that I am not currently exploring in my dissertation, if people oh. want to follow me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I study Tajikistan, I study Central Asian migration to Russia, and um, in like the first panel of my data, which is in 2007, 99.9% .9 of Tajik migrants are going to Russia. Um, in the second panel of my data, a huge drop to 99.1%, of migrants are going to Russia. Um, there's a theory in migration studies that says that if you have a sort of imperial relationship with a smaller country, you have built the infrastructure that makes it easy and uh, less costly to ha for migrants to go there. So there's a cultural connection with right, Russian and sort of Slavic, Slavicized culture um, that makes it easier to go there uh, sort of culturally, and there's also trains and infrastructure that make it easier. Um, I don't see that decline happening, mm. but I will say I think that the thing that we are probably should be most worried about in the case of Tajikistan is that 
Remittances, it's the most remittance dependent country in the world. 50% of the GDP is uh, constituted by migrant remittances. And the first thing that happens when you're in an economic crisis in Russia is uh, your employers just forget to pay you. Um, and when you're in a vulnerable employment situation, that's probably more likely. And so instead of actually seeing the physical return of uh, migrants, what you might see is just a drop off in remittances. And, and I think we did see that, right, in the, in the economic downturn. And it wasn't as drastic as people feared, but um, I assume we'll see more of that. Yes, sir, Paul. A lot of this, to me, feels like 19th century Russia. The Russification campaigns, the anti-liberal, anti-Western campaigns, the renewal of the Orthodox Church. Is part of the acceptance of this in Russia kind of a historical strand that we, you know, we, can, we can take way back and, and sort of say what's going on in Russia today with this is very much what you've seen for 200 years? I think that you can see a lot of historical strands and you can see a sort of continuity there, um, probably more so in narrative than in reality, but certainly some in reality. Um, I think that one of the things that has um, allowed for this like strong leader uh, obsession, right, with, especially for Russian nationalists, is that Russia collapsed, right? So imagine that our economy completely collapses in our way of life after 74 or some odd years. Um, when you get a chance to sort of elect a new leader, do you elect uh, a strong, someone who appears to be sort of strong? Do you elect someone who appears to be like a sort of liberal democracy type, right? What do you do? And I think that that, that decision is informed by history, right? That decision is informed by, um, by historical precedents for like strong leadership and, and having an empire. And I think that it's, it's not only the history of having a strong empire, but it's losing that, right? The sort of threat of losing that and the threat of losing like your your ability to live at all in Russia, right? The sort of the sort of collapse. So I think that that probably having it doesn't have as much to do with it as having a strong country and then losing loss it. Loss of identity. Yeah, I think loss of identity, but also loss of like material comfort, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there there's a big like there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, increased mortality during that time, increased alcoholism, disease, right? Very chaotic time and. So you can kind of understand this like resort to a strong sort of like unifying leader um, in that case. Let's do someone who hasn't talked before. Yeah. Um, do you see a rise in um, people wanting to go back to a communistic society since um, the USSR, USSR was seen as stronger than after the collapse? Um, the period from, you know, Yeltsin wasn't really seen as being strong in the economy. I would say during the Putin era, no. Um, for most people, that's not a, not a desire. And I think, um, yeah, living under it, right, and, and having a difference between having like bread lines and not, right, and there's a sort of material reality to living in a capitalist society that is better, right, in Russia. Um, I think that under Yeltsin, that's probably not as true, but under Putin now, um, I mean, there's a reason why he has like 70% favorability in the polls, and it's because there's been economic prosperity for the most part overall, 
um, in Russia, and that really influences people's ideas about politics and, and political systems. Yeah. Um, I will say, in Russia, they don't want to go back to the Soviet Union, but in Central Asia, lots of people want to go back. <laughs> lots of people do. Much more prosperous under Soviet Union. Yeah. Maybe one, we have one minute, so like a half question, or like a compliment, or just <laughs> <laughs>